now. We're good. Okay. Gents, we're live. So this is the inaugural podcast of the partnership between Maryland Reporter and a Minor Detail. Um, my name is Ryan Miner. I'm here with my friend, Len Lazaric of Maryland Reporter. Len, you know your title better than I do. It's editor and publisher. Yeah, you've been founder, do- chief cook, and bottle washer. And uh, <laughs> you, you've been you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, nine years. Yes, we're in our tenth year. Yeah. So I also have the privilege and pleasure to have Senator Brian Feldman of District 15, where I used to live. You were my state senator for. I know, I'm sorry. I, we moved to <laughs> District 17, my wife and I and our kids, um, just right outside the district. And uh, it was, you, you provided excellent representation. And I know if I ever had an, an issue, um, could come talk and you, you were responsive. So. The <laughs> And I have, we have with us uh, Senator Steve Hershey from the Upper Shore, as they call our Upper Shore. Um, and you have several counties in your legislative district. Yes, I grabbed the honor of having four counties. I have um, all of Queen Anne's County, all of Kent County, half of Cecil County, and half of Caroline County. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So, pretty busy. And what these guys have in common is they're uh, both on the Senate Finance Committee, and Senator Feldman is actually the vice chair, the new vice chair of finance. You've been on that committee for a while, and, and so is that. And I were in the House committee together, and then he followed me all the way up to the Senate. Actually, which which committee were you? Uh, uh, McMatters, okay. Along with Senator Hershey, and then he came over and been on this committee. So we've actually uh, predate the Finance Committee. We have a, you know, a long, long history here now. <laughs> <laughs> Senator Feldman, when were you first elected to the, you started out in the House of Delegates. Your trajectory into the Senate is somewhat interesting. Um, I know that when um, former Senator Rob Garagiola decided to run for Congress, you took the seat. And was it 2015? No, actually 2013. Or 2013. actually, Senator Hershey, uh, former Senator Pipkin, who was yeah. actually in the chamber this week, um, Basically, Steve followed me by one week. By one week, uh, was appointed to fill that seat, uh, and then we sat together over in the Senate uh, next to each other uh, in that sort of interim period <laughs> during the se- uh, it was September 2013 with those right. And then when we got to the 14th session, Steve and I sat together. We were literally appointed one week apart. Wow. So, well, Senator Hershey. I remember the drama of the District 36. There uh, was absolutely some drama. But it, as Brian said, it's very interesting because uh, the minority leader and the majority leader both resigned that same summer. Right, so it was Pipkin and Gergiola, the majority leader and the majority leader. <laughs> right. and then Stephen we came over and Brian got over a week before me and ends up being the vice chairman. So and we should uh, point out that, that Steve is the minority whip. He left his whip... Uh, back at his office or wherever right. he keeps <laughs> his whip. I don't carry it around the way that uh, Mike Miller is now carrying his cane around that oh. he said he will be using to uh, make sure that we stay in line. But, uh, no, it's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure to be working with Brian. As, as we said, we were both in the, uh, in the back row for, the, uh, for that first year that we were here. But um, 
And now he's in the front row. <laughs> yeah. Along with, Brent I would Brent. say, J.B. Jennings, who's also in the Senate Finance Committee. So we have the Minority Leader and the Minority Whip on the Senate Finance Committee. It's a great right. group. We've got a new committee, but it's a very strong committee. Well, before we get started into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to discuss tonight, I wanted to take care of some personnel. Um, it was announced last week that um, longtime Senate President Mike Miller has cancer, um, and what's your reaction to that? Well, look, I think everybody in the Senate chamber, I mean, you're talking about somebody who is not just the longest-serving Senate president in Maryland history, but the longest-serving Senate president in the history of the United States, a very iconic figure, uh, you know, a huge figure in every way, shape, or form. And I think every member of the Senate, all 46 other folks, are praying for him to be able to, you know, stabilize this illness and, um, you know, do whatever he needs to do. And I think the reaction, and I think I'm getting out of hand to say that, um, you know, it creates some uncertainty in the chamber. Um, there were some folks in the chamber last year, whether it was Simon Middleton or Case Meyer, that were sort of obvious uh, successors, right. um, you know, but that is... Senator Middleton you know, didn't get through the primary, and um, so Case Meyer retired. But look, I think everybody wants to put that aside and just root for the Senate President to, uh, to again stabilize this uh, situation and, uh, and be, be with us uh, as long as he wants to be with us. But you know, it does create some uncertainty. Sure. Yeah, Senator Senator Hershey, Governor Hogan battled cancer, stage three um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and so. I know that Senator Miller, he's he's tough. <laughs> uh, there's not many tougher than Mike Miller. And um, as Brian said, we're certainly first and foremost concerned about the Senate president's health. Yeah. Uh, we wish him the best. Uh, I was with him uh, last night at the gala. We walked in together. And, um, you know, he's trying to do everything he possibly can to keep things consistent, to keep things the way that they are. But he's, but he's going through a lot right now. And uh, he certainly, first and foremost, needs our thoughts and prayers and, and our support to get through this. Um, but... You know, the other thing is that, you know, we had already looked at a Senate chamber with a lot of change in it already. Uh, 17 new members that were in there, um, three new committee chairs that are in there. So there's a lot of change already. And Mike has always been the consistency that has led the Senate chamber. Yeah. So um, it just it just makes things a little bit more difficult and a lot more uncertain on uh, how, how things are going to operate. And Lynn, we had another historic moment last week. Senator Klausmeyer presided over the Senate, I believe, for the first was the first time. Uh, no, no, she had she actually had presided earlier, but but it just happened that that both uh, House Speaker Mike Bush and uh, Senate President Mike Miller were absent. So uh, Adrian Jones presided mm -hmm. in the House, and Kathy Klausmeyer uh, uh, presided in the, in the Senate. But we had uh, uh, so. Uh, we didn't mention we're actually sitting in the front room of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, uh, Harry Brown's restaurant. Actually, this the the bar has a different name. I f I, f I forget Capital what the view room isn't it? Uh, yeah, we're in the Capitol uh, view uh, room uh, now. Uh, it's we we couldn't have a better. And and if we were sitting here yesterday at uh, at about twelve thirty, we would have seen the governor sworn in again. Yeah. Across the street, uh, did uh, what did you think of the inauguration? Did you did you go outside or? Mike Miller was urging the delegates to get out of the seats of the senators. <laughs> 
plug about Senate Plotmeyer. Again, I'm going to plug our Senate Finance Committee, another member of the Senate Finance That's Committee. That's right. Um, and so, again, we, we've got a great committee uh, between Steve and JB and Plotmeyer. It's, it's great. Yeah, it was, I think it was well attended. I think it was a very bipartisan message as I... Um, you know, we do operate differently than Capitol Hill. I've, I've told many people as I teach this course at Johns Hopkins for many years on federalism, unified between Congress and the states. And most of my students work on Capitol Hill, and I don't think things happen at Capitol's. And I tell them for 10 weeks that nothing happens on Capitol Hill. All the action in the United States is happening in state capitals. And I think Governor Logan um, highlighted that fact very much yesterday, that we don't want to duplicate any way, shape, form. And our committee is a perfect example. Steve and I are not just good friends. We do uh, collaborate. We started the day in my sure. office talking about some of the hot issues in the finance committee. It's a very bipartisan, collaborative uh, committee, as is the Senate chamber as a whole. And so I think that the governor's message was uh, corroborated today uh, with Steve and myself and will be reflected, I think, in the Senate finance committee. Do, do you think the, the governor was uh, as bipartisan in his first term as as he thinks he was he was asked this question as a matter of fact this afternoon in the press conference about the budget and he he felt that he was you know bipartisan throughout his term my, my view is he seemed to get more bipartisan toward the end of the term but i'm kind of interested in, in yeah right uh, it, it, right. yeah I, I i was thinking that you would have a different perspective on this <laughs> so, so uh, in case we didn't mention this uh uh brian feldman is a democrat and steve hershey is a republican uh and 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 they can they can be friends but that they have different points of view so maybe we'll start out with steve, steve here you know, in terms I, I don't know that it it changed over time. I mean, you know, keep in mind, he, you know, gets sworn in, you know, this same time four years ago, and he was very proud that the morning after the inauguration four years ago, he dropped his first budget, yeah. and which he did today as well, too. We'll formally get it at a breakfast tomorrow morning. Um, but I, I, I think that he, he kept the same approach the entire time. I think he started off with the, with the same words of, of being bipartisan, common sense solutions. You know, somebody that got into office that really just wanted to operate in a manner that he could get both sides to work on things. Now, there certainly were some vetoes over the course of the four years, and, and I think that's where you see potentially the partisan issues with, with a veto. But I think during the governor's initial campaign, he was very consistent in what he wanted to do for the state of Maryland and certainly no new taxes uh, to get rid of fees that had been imposed uh, by the previous administration. So there were some things that we were kind of expecting right away. But I think that that also helped us as legislators work on things as well. After we saw that the governor was going to veto, you know, certain items as they as they came across his desk, I think it helped form our legislation in some ways as well, too. I mean, because, you know, even though the votes are there, but, but to override a veto takes a lot of work. And it, it also puts it out, you know, it takes an issue that, you know, that might have just gone through and it puts it on the front burner where everybody is now aware of it. And I think what we call the roadkill bill was one of those issues that got vetoed at the end of session. It was an it was an issue the entire year, um, and then it got brought back, and the, you know it certainly was overridden. But it gave the governor a chance to go out there and talk about things on on trying to remove partisanship from the general assembly. So I think he's done a great job with that. I think his speech yesterday 
um, was consistent with what he did over the last four years. So I don't think he said a whole lot of new things. He might have said it in a in a different setting with different people that were you know carefully selected and and the people that he mentioned in his speech were carefully selected. But I think overall the the message that he gave was consistent with what he's done for the last four years. All right, Brian, I, mean, I think you made the point. Like for example, I worked with him last year pretty closely on a couple issues. The Metro funding bill was one of my bills. Very important for the D.C. region. He was, you know, was very collaborative. Um, that was a great exercise in bipartisanship and health care. And then an unusual concession on his, on, on, on his part. Absolutely. That was in your four of the four-year term. Yeah. Earlier, as Steve alluded to, and I had another bill dealing with renewable energy, and we're going to have another test of that this session. Another one of my bills that now included the jobs. But earlier in the session, yeah, uh, the program was created during Bob Ehrlich's administration, enthusiastically signed law by Republican Governor Bob Ehrlich. Um, yeah, the governor, to my surprise, did veto that, and we went and overrode the veto. Um, so I think as the four-year term, I think, evolved, I, I, I do think, you know, the governor, I think, came to some pragmatic political conclusions about how do you get reelected in a state that, you know, still leans democratic. And, and uh, so that's why I think the second term is actually more interesting than the first term because now he's not thinking about re-election. He, he may have other agendas, but uh, I think it creates for uh, a little more political intrigue. You know, uh, we're going to have a big test and, on a lot of issues. This session is very coming out of the Senate Finance Committee, which is going to have, I would say, the heavy lift things mm. of the entire General Assembly are now because of the Kerwin Commission has been sort of put off. Correct. Most of the yeah. hot issues are going to come out of Steve, you know, our Finance Committee. And, and each one of these, I'm not quite sure as we sit here where the governor uh, sits. And we'll get, uh, we'll get into those issues shortly. I wanted to make the point that it's hard to be collaborative with people who don't want to collaborate with you. And and that was probably more true with the House of Delegates than it was with the with the Senate, at least in the in the first two years. And 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 the House still, you know, one of the old sayings is the you know, uh, the enemy is not the Republicans or the Democrats. The enemy is the House. Uh, and and. Of course, they say it the opposite way in the House, that the enemy is the Senate. I want to go back to yesterday. Juxtapose his, the, the first inaugural speech when Chris Christie introduced the governor, who then incidentally ran for uh, president in 2016. And then yesterday he had Jeb Bush introduce him, who also ran for president in the same cycle in that same 17-person Republican primary for president. Uh, do you think that that was a, a much different message? Do you think having Governor Bush there was sent a, a message, and based on the governor's speech yesterday, um, without mentioning Donald Trump's name, the governor um, took a page out of the, the, the moderate wing of the Republican Party, it looks like, and it, it, it seems like he is dispelling the culture of Washington. What do you guys think? It's, it's, it's more of a question for inside Republican Party. Looking in, you know, 2014, you're talking about a first-term governor, pre-Trump era. Mm. Um, you know, the, the landscape is very, very different. And I would say that, uh, you know, I can't speak to what the appetite is for uh, a primary challenge to President Trump. I mean, I, obviously, in my district, uh, Donald Trump's not real popular. I would hope that there is a huge appetite to pri primary the president. And with no federal government shutdown that impacts Maryland maybe as much as any state in 
27 or 8 days. I, it's crazy. My wife's a federal, uh, a federal worker. She's on week four. Um, you know, the, the fact is, I, I, I think it's a message that could resonate, but I think Steve is more expert on the primary <laughs> process of the National Republican Party than I, I can. Well, I'll certainly just to go back to what you said, you know, um, at the in the 2014 election, Governor Christie was the head of the Republican Governors Association Mm -hmm. and came in to help uh, Governor or candidate Hogan at at the time. And they became fast friends Mm -hmm. and and, uh, they had a lot of similarities as well, too, where Governor Christie was governor of a very deep blue state in New Jersey. And so that helped. And I think that uh, that invitation was much more of a thank you and an appreciation for things. This one was a little bit more, you know, I hate to say calculated, but but if you look at the listen to the speech and you and you heard who the governor talked about, you know, when he talked about John McCain, when he talked about uh, President Bush 41, and I think most importantly, when he talked about his father. Yeah. You know, you saw three three men that kind of bucked their party a little bit and, and, and did as what the governor said the right thing and made the right decisions over time. And I think that's what the governor's message was, was, was that this isn't just about party, but this is about men and the governor who wants to do the same, doing the right thing and making the right decisions for the betterment of of the state of Maryland in, in his case. So, um, you know, as far as the, you know, the conversations that are going on around presidency and, and challenging President Trump in a primary, that's something that's very, very difficult to do, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't just, you know, Maryland, sure, you know, you'd probably see Governor Hogan on the top of the list there. But, but I think what also is out there, if you keep in mind where we are right now, um, candidates are announcing for the 2020 presidential election this month. So if you really want to do something, we'll fast forward to four years and take a look at this time frame compared to the 2020 presidential elections when, you know, a then Governor Hogan with two full terms um, as, as governor of Maryland could then possibly take a look at something if that was what his interest was and the timing would be right to go right away into a right. you know, an 18 month to to and, year and governor hogan points out that as he has pointed out in the past that uh, he's the the chair elect of the national governors association right. where where he represents the interests of all the governors of both parties uh on on a national level and that's you know that that raises his visibility but I think we're ready to uh, to yeah, switch should. to those hot, hot issues, and the hottest issue uh, that I can see is raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars. Would mm. you agree that that's a hot? Actually, I, I mean, I think that will clearly be a hot issue in the uh, the finance committee. I actually think we um, also have jurisdiction over health care policy, prescription drug pricing. Uh, renewable energy, clean energy. Um, and so I, I have to add. All those are my niner issues. I can't wait for 5G. <laughs> I mean, these are all in the finance committee. And so, you know, I'm not sure uh, that the minimum wage debate would be the hottest issue. I actually think that health care 
you know, at the federal level, mm-hmm. have a dismantling of the Affordable Care Act. Maryland um, was out front with the ACA early on. And with this dismantling, we went, you know, we had about 12.5% of our uh, population had no health insurance. We're down to about 6%. There's no mandate in place anymore because of the federal tax plan in December 17. Now I've got to keep pulling out of the insurance pool. So that's why we started with that state reinsurance plan, which is bipartisan, but that's just a bit of a short-term fix. So that's a hot issue. This year's midterms around the country, the number one issue on people's minds was health care. Yeah. Hmm. Another issue, prescription drug pricing. These are hot national issues. So which is part of health care as well. County, well, when you get about minimum wage, my county's already passed the minimum wage. Right? County's $15. Correct. So that's... But I will talk about that. I mean, it's a complicated issue. It inevitably fits the business community against other interests. What do we do with a county like Montgomery? Last time we had this debate, we had to figure out, are we going to preempt Montgomery and Prince George's that had already passed minimum wage laws before we even started the session? Do you want to have 23 counties with 23 different minimum wages? Um, what about the nonprofits that you raise, you know, or the DDA community? If you raise minimum wage and they don't get a corresponding reimbursement from the state, what are the impacts? So it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, I just don't know how contentious that one will be uh, as compared to some of these other issues, which really fits a lot of, I think, more complexity in some respect. Well, what about prescription drugs? I mean, the, the, the proposal is to have an affordability board. Uh, I mean, people have tried to tackle prescription drugs and also the health insurance are, are really federal issues that the state is trying to mitigate. Choice. I mean, if the feds aren't going to act, this comes back to this class idea. If there's inaction at the federal level, states are going to move. States are going to change. You know, even minimum wage. Feds haven't passed a minimum wage increase. It used yeah. to be a federal responsibility. Right, right. It only was later when hmm. there was no action for 10, 15 years at the federal level that states decided that the minimum wage that existed 20 years ago, you know, was a little antiquated. So states, and now we have even further, we have localities and cities. This is like. 25 years ago, you never thought that states would pass minimum wage increases or counties would pass minimum This used to be a federal responsibility. So it's not unique to health care. It's minimum wage. All these issues are being pushed back down uh, to the states, and we're left kind of responding. But But I think at the same time, that's what makes minimum wage so much more contentious because because there isn't one federal standard and you're seeing so many standards. So not only are we looking at within our state, for instance, that Montgomery County has already done this and, and at one time Baltimore City went first and then that got vetoed when it went when it went a little bit higher, higher. But over where I represent on, on the Eastern Shore, we're also competing with Delaware. Mm-hmm. So Delaware has a $9 minimum wage. So now all of a sudden you're saying, oh, not only do we have to compete, you know, the state wants to change it and maybe keep up with Montgomery County and put it to, to $15. Well, they're competing with Virginia. That's still seven twenty-five. So, you know, that's what's making it a little bit more contentious as well, too. Yeah, and we should point out that the, the state just phased in to $10.10 10 10 10 right. uh, over a few and, years. And, and that's kind of our position as well, too. Wait a minute. We just went through this. And, and sometimes you get to the point is, when is enough enough? And... You know, at, at the same time, you say, you know, we, we went to ten ten. Now we have to go to, to fifteen dollars. But you know, th- then you have the whole you know socioeconomic part of this, and say, you know, are we getting to the point where we're seeing so much automation? We're seeing you know these types of jobs going going away for that. And then do you have employers that start saying, well, wait a minute, 
you know, there just might be some employees that are not worth $15 to my company. They might not create the value that I need for paying somebody $15. And keep in mind, as you take a person that might be making 10 10 already, if you move them to 15 well, you probably also have a person that's making $15. Well, guess what? You're moving them up to 18 And that $18 person now is making 22 23 So it increases labor costs all the way across the board. And, and I think that's what one of the difficult things is when you talk to small businesses, whether they can stomach and whether they can, can absorb those types of costs. And I, I just don't think that we're hearing that they well, can. Well, I want to mention that Senator Hershey and Senator Feldman, you both represent very different districts. And so... It, you, you listen to the constituents, and this is a hot topic. This is an issue that has been in the media that Marylanders are aware that could be heavily discussed throughout this session. So what are you hearing from your constituents? You know, I, truth be told, I mean, I, I would say, although my district is very diverse, I should make the point that my district goes from Potomac to the south, which I wouldn't say the minimum wage is at the, at the high end, you know, mm. high discussion item on River Road in Potomac, <laughs> all the way to the Frederick County border in Germantown and Clark, mm -hmm. very diverse political district. So, you know, depending on, on where the issue is, I think the complexity, coming back to my original point, for Democrats um, has been, and it was the last time we debated it, was... Okay, even if you agree that we should raise the minimum wage to some level, how do you deal with nonprofits and DBA? Last time, Governor O'Malley, who was our Senator Mac Middleton, our chair, looked. Martin O'Malley wanted a minimum wage increase very badly. And Middleton basically says, We are not going to give you a minimum wage increase unless you agree um, that you're going to give a corresponding adjustment to the development and disability community because they can't absorb the cost. So here, this progressive liberal Democrat supporting <laughs> minimum wage. You need to be prepared to figure out what the consequences are for all these other organizations and groups. That's where I think it gets complicated. As far as my constituents, I have to say, because in Montgomery, they already passed the law. Right. It's, it's really, I think, the other parts of the state where they are hearing the and, and the politics of the statewide, uh, uh, we asked, the Maryland reporter asked a question in the, the Gonzalez poll about the minimum wage. And it was broken down to into you know whether you strongly support it or not. Well, it turns out that that 47% of the the people statewide strongly support it. 78% of Democrats uh, support the idea. African Americans, the only people opposed to the minimum wage are Republicans, and and people in in the the rural areas. And but and you're already seeing like kiosks and fast food. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know, you mentioned how how different the areas are that both Brian and I represent. You know, it'd be interesting to see in Brian's district. You know, the the average you know salary in a, in a Montgomery County, for instance. But then take a look at that in comparison to what we have on the Eastern Shore, where I don't want to say that we struggle for jobs, but we have to do everything we can already to create jobs and bring businesses into our area. Then alone, you you say you know how much of of our economy is based on tourism. And seasonal jobs. So, so now all of a sudden, as you, you we talk. We had a debate last year on earned sick, paid sick leave. That's right. Jim Mathias from Ocean City also is on the planet. We spent, I don't know how many hours debating the, right. you know, the boardwalk, the seasonal workers on the boardwalk. How do you treat them? Right. You know, it's a different dynamic. And, and right. What was his position? Well, that there, that was a, you know, there was a carve out or an exemption, and you know, we, we made provisions, and we spent how many days of part time employment apply? Yeah. Really, really in the weeds, complicated. Sure <laughs> and you know, so yeah, the issue can get complex. I mean, 
right. No, but I, but I was just going to add too that that when I talk to my constituents, that's what you you know originally asked. You know, I hear people that have these smaller businesses that say. Hey, you know what? Here's what here's what I do with a minimum wage individual. First of all, it's a starting wage. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I give an opportunity to maybe a a high school student that um, wants to come into my my store and and learn how to be you know become responsible, learn how to show up on time, learn how to work a cash register, a point of sale, learn customer service, learn that type of responsibility. He says, for ten dollars an hour, I can afford to do that with that type of person. For fifteen dollars an hour, he says, I'm finding somebody permanent because I, I can't afford to do that with some people that that do not have those skill sets yet so so that's one of the things as well and then you again you see it with 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 tourism and and seasonal type of jobs that you're bringing people in that are doing things that you know may not again I, we look at businesses as, as do you create value this isn't big corporations that are you know bringing a number of people and these are small businesses over time if you've been on these committees a while you know it becomes I wouldn't say a little numb to the arguments, but for example, I was on the committee that had the smoking ban. We passed, we, we did the stigma. At the time, Montgomery County, again, acted for <laughs> said basically, we passed the smoking ban. It's funny, we're hearing Harry Brown's, right. and let's like, I don't, you know, people forget, wasn't that long ago when we did it? Every restaurant um, in the state of Maryland was going to go out of business. Everyone's going to rush to yeah. Virginia because they want to watch the Steelers or, or the Ravens or the Redskins, and they want to catch a smoke. And if you go, you know, Western Maryland, it's like if you mm-hmm. Montgomery County people want to, you know, do your thing, fine, but don't impose your culture <laughs> on, on me. I know Ryan, you're you know, from Davidstown yep. or thereabouts. But so we heard that that it had massive impact. Last time we did the minimum wage increase, which was when, 2014, the same thing, the same crowd comes in and says, if you do this, it is going to, so we're sitting in a state right now, you know, unemployment, I don't know, three plus percent, things, so there is, I'm not suggesting that the arguments don't have merit, but nationally, where there has been minimum wage increases, the effects that are represented to the committee you can then look back and test it and see if it actually uh, came to what what you say is uh, what what you see is businesses uh, adapt but well, one they overstate the case and then when we go back and point out that the world did end in 2014 when we did it they're like well but this is different it's too soon to and i i don't mean to harp on the smoking matters yeah, right. we have heard the same thing with the paid sick leave if you give people five hours you know a year of sick leave we're just going to have to go out of business. We're going to relocate <laughs> to Virginia, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. So I think there's always a cognitive overstep. You can make the case. I think it can be a very rational economic. I think Steve does a great job of making the economic case for a small business. But then sometimes the case gets overstated. And then the credibility level, you know, um, you lose a little bit there. And, and so... Um, We'll have to wait to see what the arguments are this time. Right. What about uh, prescription drugs, though? That 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 seems to be an issue that's not particularly partisan. The same with healthcare. I mean, that, that I mean, that, that's an issue. Those are issues that really cut across lines. I mean, you, I mean, your constituents care about the cost of prescription drugs, right? Well, of course they do. And, you know, again, it was a big issue last year. It came down, I think, the signy die, right, Brian, when we had the the, uh, the bill. A couple years ago with the first in the nation price gouging. Price gouging, right. I remember that. It got struck down by the court circuit. It's now pending in front of the potential the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, I think at some point in time it also gets in the position of how much government regulation needs to go into pricing. And, of course, there, you know, a lot of 
of these bills come in because, you know, of, of one or two situations where you see the, the Martin Scarelli comes in and he does something that was with, was within the laws and was, was allowed to do more. You know, another, this is another issue that should probably be held at, handled at the federal level. And we, I guess, just realize it's not trying to do something. Mm-hmm. So. But but I think at the same and time, even President Trump has has, well, has come out in favor. Everybody has recognized that something has gone on that that has cost these prices to go high, to get so much higher. But the important thing is that we you know we've discussed over the last few years. It's not just the pharmaceutical companies. I mean there there is this entire you know middle area of which you have pharmacy benefit managers, insurance companies, that they do a lot in dictating what the actual price is. Now, it's easy to go after the pharmaceutical companies because you see how much money they're making. You see what, what you know, those, those big pharma, big, big pharma. pharma. Yeah, that's yeah. easy. But but I I've always been in the position is if we're going to look at this, let's look at the entire supply chain. Let's look at how the pricing is determined from the from the PBMs. Let's look at the insurance companies' roles as well, and then and then how it ends up getting to the the patient on what their final price is. And you know, I've, I've had conversations. We've looked at it. You know, they they came out the last year and they talked about well, look at all the money that uh, pharma is is used is spending in advertising. So they must have too much money if they're spending all this money in advertising. And I said to him, I said, you know, you've kind of lost me on advertising. I said, advertising, I think, is, is good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with somebody watching a commercial that's had shoulder pain for the last three years and see somebody that, that has gone to the doctor and said, hey, maybe if I try this instead of what you've been doing for me, maybe that might work. That's one thing that's going on as well, too. So that's not necessarily bad. You also look at, I think they said, like 98% of the, of the R&D um, doesn't end up with a successful product. And so you're, how, how do you go back and try to determine what the right price is for a, a particular drug when you're having to compound 98% of the failures that didn't work into the price of that one drug? So it makes it very, very complicated. And I think at least if we're going to start looking at that, that full supply chain on how pricing is also determined, then maybe there is some middle ground here. You know, I would say um, we're going to have it's going to be a big fight. So, Delegate Canyon Melnick and actually Senator Klauslar do have a bill that would create a board of sorts. Mm-hmm. Right. No, no such bill or board exists in the United States. We went through this thing with price gouging with First Nation. Big Pharma, big industry, doesn't want a, you know, this, if we're the first in state, you can, every lobbyist in the nation who represents Big Pharma will descend on Annapolis as they did with the price gouging bill. Because once one state moves, when we passed that price gouging bill a few years ago, which said our attorney general could sue drug manufacturers for unconscionable, unjustified price increases that they, they couldn't justify in it under any circumstance, um, 20 other states then, uh, you know, drafted bills to follow it. So this similarly, um, and now, so industry has their own bill. So we have two competing bills. We have this board bill, but then big farmers coming in with a competing bill. They'll both be in front of the finance committee. Every lobbyist in Annapolis will be hired. And it's, the, stakes are, the stakes are very, you know, very high. And, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. But I think Steve's point, and Steve did a good job even doing price gouging uh, debate about the complexity because there's a lot of middle players. The only thing I would say, just, you know, in terms of the United States, some of these drugs, the same exact drug 
presumably being sold for a profit, is being sold in Toronto. We're not talking about third world nation for like 10% of what right. they're selling. That same exact drug here in the state of Maryland for. So I assume at 10%, just, they won't be selling unless they're making some money. That's hard to get your handle on. There must be, um, you know, so I think it's important. If they're not going to do anything on the Capitol Hill, yet again, another issue where states want to respond. And I'm, I'm, I would say on that Pena Melnick. Um, Bill, County Executive Barry Glassman has signed on fully endorsing the Republican former member of the finance committee, now County Executive of Harper County, enthusiastically endorsed that proposal. So yeah, it is bipartisan, and I'll be interested to see where but the governor comes down <laughs> on this issue. <laughs> there is a little bit of a problem that happens down here in Annapolis sometimes, and we say we call it voting on the title of the bill. You know, sponsoring the title of the bill, and you, and it's very hard to put a red vote up there when you see price gouging. You know, because it's 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 uh you know it's but but these issues. Yeah, are very, what's what's the matter with you, well, Steve? Are you in favor <laughs> of price gouging? But but, but I but but I will but I will remind everybody. First of all, that was limited to the generic. Second of all, the governor uh, did not veto or, or vetoed that legislation or did not he did not he did not sign he did not sign it. It went to court and it was deemed that it might not have been constitutional. So so there were a few problems with that piece of legislation but again you, you get up there and you put the title of the, the bill up there it's hard to put a red vote up there and I think that's what I, I, I well I did I, I was hey, well I, kind of, I stuck out a little well, bit well uh, Steve does the hard thing <laughs> there was a little justification in seeing that that might not be constitutional so but I, I think that's what's happened when you get on board with it and you talk to people and you say okay is this a good idea you know we're, we're, we're certainly all on the same page and I think that's a, a lot of what you see in, in Annapolis, we 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 are on the same page of a lot of issues. It's just how do we get there, and that's where we differ. And, and you know, you brought up uh, paid sick leave, you know, earlier. The, it's not like the Republicans were against paid sick leave, but there's a lot of issues in what we call the back of the bill that opened up, you know, the businesses books to, to regulators and inspectors and things of that nature. If you didn't follow the right path, if this was a simple bill, and I think I, I, I actually offered to make that amendment where each business just gives five days of, of, um, of paid or mandatory or of paid leave, um, Whatever form you want to do, you want to call it vacation time, you want to call it sick time, but each business had to give you five days, period, end of the bill, we'd all be on board with it. But but sometimes these bills go a little bit too far in what else, and other things that they're trying to say and, and how they, they accomplish that, and that's where we, we, we tend to differ. There's also the overriding principle that the, that the, the generalized feeling among Republicans, at least, that they're too much business regulation too much getting down into the details of what you should do. He's got that down. The, 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 he's heard that before. <laughs> he, you've right. heard the arguments. Right. You've heard, heard the arguments. Right. Yeah, the nanny state. So, were you the floor leader on that bill, by the way? Uh, the sick, the sick leave bill. No. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, got, we got a lot of, you know, I mentioned earlier the Clean Energy Jobs Act, right, which right. is an economic case. I mean, right now, again, fourth week of a government shutdown. It's imperative. I have to make this one point, and this is where the governor and I have 100% be in agreement. If we really, really need to diversify our private sector economic That's right. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Move away from dependence on federal government jobs, and it's highlighted right now. 
and you know, tribe with biotech, cybersecurity, and clean energy industry. And it's the federal contractors, too. That's right. And they're not going to get paid. No, it's, it's, you know, and we need to do that. We need, that's why we made a big play in Montgomery to keep Marriott Global Headquarters in our county, why we made a play for Amazon. Was the right thing to do, in my opinion. Um, but I think clean energy is sort of where the future is, and I'll be interested to see where the governor is on this. So yes, there's environmental arguments because of you know all the reports about climate change, but I think the economic case is pretty compelling because we again have about 170 solar companies now in the state of Maryland. We're talking about thousands of potential jobs, and so that's going to be interesting. You're right; the governor did early veto a more modest bill a few years ago. But he did kind of have to make this point because, like, a few weeks in the Washington Post, the governor, along with Governor Northam, uh, did an op-ed piece talking about the states need to take the lead on renewable energy. That was yep. Governor Hogan, okay. Governor Northam, and uh, I, I was you know, surprised pleasantly, and you know, I look forward to working with the governor on, on that legislation. I don't know. I think well, Mayor so Bowser was on that, yeah, too. But, one but, that, yeah, but again, let's again, we're talking about headlines. We're talking about, hey, are you in favor of, of renewable energy and increasing the renewable energy? Of course people are, That's but that's not what the bills are necessarily about. You know, the renewable energy bills are about subsidies, right? I mean, you know, there's this thing called renewable energy credits, and, and this is all about you know, putting a subsidy program in place to incentivize these these different, you know, whether it's so you can reach the targets. So, so we can, can reach, reach but, but 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 first of all, you know, who who has come back here and proven that this now now here we're going back into the businesses of let's say a solar de- developer. Why are we taking their word for it that they can't make their their projects pencil? Without these subsidies, you know what? Just put it out there that we want to we want to have this much of our of our uh, portfolio uh, of our electric supply come from renewable sources. Period. End of statement. Let's go do it. Oh no no no! We need a subsidy in order to do that. Well, how do I know that you need that? And and who's coming to prove it? And then why is this industry any different? I mean, there's lots of businesses out there that might say, Hey, I, I'd like a little bit more. I mean, why don't you give me a subsidy to go out and and you know and build new new roofs on people's? I don't know if you can, Brian. I mean, but I no. I just, what what, the, what would your bill do? I mean, I think. And, and we had last year bills from Delegate Shane Robinson, much more ambitious to the left. This is 50% by 2030. And again, it's an economic... And where, where are we now, though, in terms of... Uh, 25% by 2020. No, 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 no. I'm not oh, saying... Well, uh, what are we actually using? We're, I think we're like in 12.5% or 16% right now. I mean, let me just make... I have to make the point. We can't ignore some of the 1,600-page report of the you know, Trump administration talking about the need to act quickly, which is why the governor did an op-ed piece. And so, I mean, we can, if we, here's another point about this. If we status quo, we do nothing. Other states are moving into this space. When I talk about the private sector economic portfolio, if we don't do anything, those solar jobs are going to go to New Jersey, New York, D.C., California. All the rest. It's not a Democrat-Republican. Some of the issues, some of the states that have been very ambitious are in deep red America. But, but, but in our current setup that we already have, it many of those jobs are already out of state, and and that's one of the things that we talked about last year when we had some discrepancy about um, what we were tier two. I'm not going to our day today in my office talking about this bill. Talking about this exactly. Steve Steve was in my office with a bunch of folks pushing another source of renewable and. 
how we can change the bill, and we talked back and forth about this very subject. Right. Well, I asked but, where we are. Uh, I buy my electricity from Constellation, and, and I got a breakdown of where it comes from, and, and they're only at 5% renewable at, at, hmm. But that's the Overall, issue when we talk wide. about, if we're going to talk about a jobs bill, we have to be uh, focused on where those jobs are being created. Now, I haven't seen uh, Senator Feldman's bill yet, but the bills that we've seen in the past, it doesn't matter. I mean, well, it, it matters. If, if you have a renewable energy generating facility somewhere in what we call the PJM region or or supplies directly into the Maryland grid, then you are eligible for these RECs. And again, the RECs are su- ratepayer paid subsidies. So, so the problem is, as we saw in the last year the data was available, Maryland ratepayers spent over $176 million in subsidies so for these companies. Well, Brian's, <laughs> Brian's much, <laughs> much <laughs> Brian, yeah, well, that's, 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 well, well because, oh, it's another 50 cents, but it's also 50 cents. Oh, we, we're doing math in our heads now. So. But, but that 50 cents on top of the 50, uh, the dollar 50 that we're going to pay for offshore wind on top of the, the $6 that we pay every month for, for M power. Didn't we have this conversation earlier? I thought we had this conversation earlier where you where you push the limits a little bit too far that you well, <laughs> that you start losing that you start losing credibility to, to the argument. Only part of the Eastern Shore will be underwater. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> you know, I keep, keep in mind, I, I don't. Good I don't for think Senator Hershey, he represents the uh, the upper. But, yeah. but, but the other thing with the, the report that's been talked about, I don't know that that report was prescriptive. I don't know that it said, hey, if every state turned and went around and went to 100% RPS or, or, or something like that, that we would stop these changes from being made. And that's the other thing. You know, does Maryland go into 100% or 50% RPS? Does that slow the global, you know, this global crisis down? And there's but I, you know, Steve's point about the headline. Look, it is fair. You know, some of this is optics. Some of this title. Uh, on this, in this case, I do. I believe this is kind of a legitimate policy call, right in the here and now, for economic reasons, private sector economic reasons, as well as the environmental climate change issues that are. It's, but this but is what I take is Steve doesn't have a problem with the goal. He has a problem with the subsidies well, to meet the goal. that's what we do. And, and I think keep, keep in mind, you know, for some people, what government's role may be in, in starting up industries. And we would come in with a program like we did. I think you said it was under Governor Ehrlich. But we incentivized renewable energy generation in our state that were through this program. Well, that's great. Government got involved. We got started. But at some point in time, government needs to wean itself out of this. You know, we've got this industry started. It's up. It's booming. And w- why do we need to still be involved with the subsidies? Why can't we just say, hey, you know what? Give ourselves a pat on the back. A bunch of legislators did a good thing. We got this industry going. But now now scale back on it. And that's what we've seen that has happened with the with renewable energy credits. They've gone down like they're supposed to. And guess what? The developers have said, wait a minute, now this, this, this credit is so marginalized, it's not helping us anymore. We need something to... You guys to got a preview of the bill here. <laughs> I can't wait. This yeah, is, right. We, so, we might have broken... We can just say, I, well, I think we bring, need to climb out of the weeds here. We, we need to yeah. climb to sorry, the... Sorry. And, and where are we on time, Lynn? Uh, 
where are we? Uh, we're actually beyond, uh, well, when did we start? <laughs> about about seven. So uh, yeah, um, why don't we briefly finish up with the budget? Tomorrow you are, you both will receive the... The a budget. The I mean, this is the this is the bread and butter of Annapolis, where legislators look forward to. I don't know, maybe they don't look forward to. Yeah. Well, well, Lynn and I both attended the governor's press conference today, and he went through a litany of issues and priorities. And it looks like that education, of course, will be funded at the highest levels ever. So why don't you share? What? Uh, why don't you share some? some thoughts on your expectations for the budget and what you think. The, would the, the process this year be any different from previous years? Right. Right. Yeah, she's somewhere. Right. Yeah. Now we're going to be searching for details, right? <laughs> between the between the two of us, actually, we'll see. You know, I, I it's been interesting with the budget, as, and I was having this conversation with somebody uh, recently that, you know, under Governor O'Malley, you know, the Republic the budget came out, and all the Republicans did is fight, fight, fight. Whatever was in it, it was wrong. It was simple. <laughs> um, you know, now over the last four years, and now this being the fifth governor that uh, fifth budget that Governor Hogan has put in. You know, from, from that aspect, it's, it's kind of our budget, you know, from the Republican standpoint. Republican governor put in a budget that, you know, first and foremost, no new taxes. We're happy. Um, it goes through the process and it comes back out. And, you know, the, the, the budget debates over the last four years on the Senate floor have been almost non-existent. We passed the budget in the state Senate 47 to 0. That's not Capitol Hill. If there's ever an example of us being but in the House, there's always 10 or 11. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the House is always looking, and I know the members over there that are part of that, you know, 7 to 10 votes that just say, is the, is the budget any more than it was last year? That, that's the only question they ask. And if it is, it's a red vote. And, you know, it's... You know, some Isn't that a little myopic? That's a little short-sighted. Of course it is. But well, the same, and, and, the same legislators, of course, when it comes to the capital budget, don't get any money back for their districts. No, no, right. No, but I, I, I don't either. But I could probably name them. Yeah, well, and, but that's what I mean. And that's, and that's what they see. And, and that's what the first question will be tomorrow. How much more is this budget than it was last year? For, for those individuals. What, what we want to focus on, again, that there's no no new tax increases. Those are the governor is sticking to what he's right. talking about. Uh, record funding for education. Um, I, I see that there's going to be record funding for Chesapeake Bay restoration. Yeah. And uh, $1.3 billion dollars in reserve. And reserve. So, yeah. I mean, I think... We're worried about a, a pending recession. That's last right. Year, last yesterday, the Budget and Tax Committee got um, Moody's uh, report. Uh, projecting that in 2020 we could see a recession in this state. So that was just yesterday in the budget and tax committee. Right. So, um, you know, this idea of a rainy day fund, we're protective of our AAA bond rating, we're one of only 11 states or so that have that. We managed our finances solidly, and so the idea of putting money aside for a pending potential recession in 2020 is a real thing. And at least uh, one economist testified yesterday that they anticipate that. Well, the governor also talked about today that four out of five of the uh, the state's top unions came to the table. One he mentioned, I think he referred well, it to. The, the largest AFSCME. Yeah, uh, AFSCME. But he gave everybody a 3%. The, 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 
the one thing that stood out, you, you know, the governor has has objected to the Kerwin Commission and the, and the size of its budget, but he's putting $200 million aside to implement uh, their recommendations for this year. And I looked up what they actually were going to ask for this year, for 2020, and they were going to ask for $200 million. Hmm. So uh, it's kind of interesting. Now, where that money is set aside, we don't know. I mean, they're, we actually haven't seen the budget. All, you know, we, we've seen one. Well, no, we're not speculating. Well, no, this they is put out a press release. It's not. <laughs> he said, darn it, the governor said it. That's right. That's right. Well, it's been involved. I'm sure. uh, uh, as, as Brian uh, said, there's there's fiscal restraint in the fact that if we're you raise money everything by one percent every year, you have record funding. That's every right. Year. That's right. right. <laughs> Half a percent. I mean, that's uh, it's a it's a it's a solid talking point. But this, when the budget is carved up, that is where that is where the rubber meets the road, and the, so that's, that's, that's actually our only constitutional responsibility. That's right. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I wanted to make one side point, um, Senator Feldman. You have a a propensity, almost a hobby, to visit state capitals throughout the. Uh, yeah, that's right. But I, I mean, I know that what you, what your favorite state capital is. But how many have you visited in total? Yeah. Nervous, kind of competitive, but uh, every time he goes to the state capitol, he sends me, you know, a picture, and it's like I'm wearing a tail. <laughs> and uh, there's another. Actually, Senator Kagan um, has been to 49, wow. 48 or 49 of the 50. One of the ones she's wow. knocked is North Dakota, which I knocked out last year in this month. Um, what about Alaska? I've not been to Alaska. So okay. To All right. Do you well, know, it's tough to get to. Right. It is tough to get to. Um, gentlemen, we sincerely appreciate you coming on the... Anu- <laughs> I know. You guys are great That's guests. Right. So That's for the right. first inaugural you podcast... You told them 15 minutes? Really? <laughs> well, I told them that we would be doing segments and... Well, thank you. Well, we'll get you out of here. Uh, uh, some lobbyist group right. is buying you dinner it's tonight. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, right. oh geez. It's still work. It's still work. It, <laughs> it's always work. It really as is. long as you're wearing the suit, it's work. So, uh, gentlemen, thank you for coming on tonight. Um, and, again, Len and I will be here. We're going to hope to do this every week here at Harry Brown's. Tell everybody in the other room about this. Yeah, what they think? What they say? They were loving it. They couldn't wait to come over and introduce themselves to you. So All right. I think you're going to have... Well, I hope so. so we, li- we've been here long enough. It started snowing. All right, gents. Yeah, thank beautiful. you so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Okay. All righty. Thanks.